Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 12. I'm your host, Dan Holzman, and on this podcast, I'll be talking to the master street performer, David Aiken, better known as the checkerboard guy. So stick around, hear a lot of great stories from The Pitch, which is also the name of his podcast, from the Busker Hall of Fame. Let me thank the sponsor, the main sponsor for this podcast is the IJA, the International Jugglers Association. Their website can be found at juggle.org. Join the greatest community of jugglers in the world. Join the IJA. A big thanks to our engineer, the lovely and talented Karen Holzman. Now sit back, drop everything, and get ready to listen to the checkerboard guy, David Aiken. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, Mr. David Aiken. Well, hello. Hey, David. Uh, you're better known as the checkerboard guy. Let's get a little background before we get into your juggling career. Can you tell us where you grew up? I grew up in a bunch of different places. Born in New Zealand, then grew up for the first four years in Ottawa, then moved to Minnesota, then back up to Ottawa. And what did your parents do for a living where there was so much uh, moving around? Well, my dad was an engineer and my mom was a botanist, and they ended up going to the University of Minnesota to upgrade their qualifications. Was there any show business connection in your family? Anybody you uh, had a relative that was involved in juggling or circus or anything like that? Absolutely not. I come from a family of real academics. Uh, my grandfather was a lawyer. My uncle is a surgeon. And both of my parents come from fairly heavy-duty academic backgrounds. And do you have brothers and sisters? I have a brother. And he, actually, it's funny that my parents produced a juggler and a visual artist. I'm not sure how that worked out. And when did you first discover juggling? When did you first see it? And how how did you learn to juggle? I first really became aware of it, I guess, at a Renaissance festival in Minnesota when I would have been about 10, 10 or 11 years old, I guess. And I saw the Flying Karamazov Brothers. So the first jugglers you saw were the Flying Karamazov Brothers? Yeah. And what did you think about that? Did it immediately intrigue you? Did you just enjoy the comedy or did you go... Oh my God, that's what I want to do. It wasn't any of that. I was just really enjoying this whole Renaissance medieval setting that all these shows were taking place in. And I remember seeing Puke and Snot and Sack Theater and riding on these great jousting rides and all these other things that were just a part of the whole experience. So no one juggling or other performer really clicked in so much as it was just all a great day. So when you got home, when did you decide, okay, I'm going to try that myself? The oh, not... Yeah, not till years later. Oh, okay. How yeah, old no, were you then when you started to uh, the juggling journey? So I'd seen the the flying caves when I was about ten, and I guess it wasn't until I was thirteen in grade eight that I started to juggle myself. And what what prompted that? Well, my brother had I guess learned through drama or some other source how to do a three ball cascade, and he showed me the basic pattern for a right left toss. He couldn't actually do a three ball cascade himself, but he understood the the mechanics behind it. And like so a two I saw ball it. transfer. Exactly. And when I saw that transfer, it sort of stuck in my head, but I didn't really do anything with it for a couple months. Is this your older brother? Yeah, he's uh, three years older than I am. Okay. So he really couldn't juggle, but he showed you that sort of basic one up, two up. It stuck in your craw and your mind for a couple of months. And then what was the next step? Well, my mom used to put uh, the socks in the laundry. She'd roll them up into balls. And my job as a helper around the house was to put away the laundry. So I would bring the basket up from the laundry room in the basement. And then I would sort the laundry out on a bed. And this one day, there were a bunch of socks all rolled up in balls. And for some reason, that, that one, two, right hand, left hand pass exchange sort of kicked in. And I just started tossing the socks around until 
I started to actually be able to do the pattern. How long would you say it took you from just sort of trying it to actually getting several throws of the cascade? Uh, far longer than it should have. I started sort of Friday afternoon and all day Saturday, all day Sunday, I was working on it because I had no one to show me what I was doing wrong. So I was really just scrambling to try to make it happen. At what point did you decide to get something better than socks, even though there were probably our professional juggling socks available? <laughs> so at what point did you say, I need to get some balls or I want to take this further? How did that develop? Well, at the time, it's funny, there's this Renaissance Festival connection again. There was the Society of Creative Anachronism, and I'd gotten involved in it in Ottawa, where I was living. And through that society, I met other people who, who were involved in juggling and got a natural set of juggling beanbags that I started to use as a more consistent, more regular shaped ball. Would you say that juggling became quite quickly your hobby? Uh, more of an obsession, because... It was one of those things where I was very, very frustrated that I wasn't able to do what I thought I should be able to do. And then my OCD kicked in and it was just do it until you get it. So how long after you learned to juggle, did you decide to sort of take it on the streets or start to perform? And did you make any money right away? Or what was that journey like? Well, I, I started really picking it up in the fall. Uh, I was lucky that this medieval society that I was a member of they sort of adopted me kind of to be the jester guy. And so they'd have these medieval feasts and things. And it gave me an opportunity to try my hand at a little bit of performing. But it wasn't really for money at that stage, mm -hmm. more for sort of the, uh, the acknowledgement and the prestige of doing something interesting within this group. And it probably wasn't as focused. You're probably a part of a bigger pageantry. So you could juggle in front of people, but yet not have the entire focus on you. Well, they would give me the focus, which was really nice at the time, but it, it didn't have to be longer than a five-minute presentation. So there was not a whole lot of pressure put on me at the time to uh, you know, exceed expectations, and expectations of 13-year-old in this society were not that high to begin with, so I, I got away with murder. And at that point, did you ever have an inkling in your mind like, this is what I want to do, I, I'm going to become a juggler? really wasn't about becoming it. It, it was just a really enjoyed, uh, I think something about the, the aspect of patterns. I, I know a lot of jugglers are math mathematicians mm -hmm. and that whole, it makes sense, especially when SiteSwap came out and there was a real mathematical way of describing these patterns. It all of a sudden really triggered that part of the brain for people who are really engaged with that part of the brain. So you felt so, that learning the patterns was something that really sort of struck you as wow, I can sort of create these visual patterns and sort of look at all the different variations I can do on this basic theme. Right. And that it both excited me, intrigued me, and then frustrated me when what I thought I should be able to do was just out of my grasp. And that's how you progress with any skill is to push yourself beyond what you're capable of doing to the point, not, not so far that it becomes, you know, soul destroying, but just far enough so that it's constantly just beyond your reach. And let's say you're 13 at this point. Did you also start to juggle with other things, the clubs or, or knives or anything else, uh, renaissance-y? Well, the balls were really where it really started. And then I picked up some, like a, a budget set of knives and started juggling knives because it seemed like something that people were carrying around in the renaissance anyway. And that then led to clubs and other things as well. Yeah, they would carry around knives. And also, I think scurvy was something they would <laughs> Yeah, life. the plague. Yeah. Maybe that's where the black for the black and white checkerboard came from, the black plague. Well, we'll, get, we'll talk about the checkerboard uh, character because you're age 13. Yeah. At what point did you move from this Renaissance Fair experience to sort of starting to create more of your own solo show? 
Right. Well, that was the following spring. I lived in Ottawa, and the winters in Ottawa are very cold. So it wasn't until the spring, and in fact, the festival of spring, a big tulip festival in Ottawa, where friends suggested I go out and perform amongst the artisans who were selling their crafts. And so I went out, put out a hat, and ran through my tricks. So it's more of like, put out the hat, watch me juggle. Did you include patter or just stand there and juggle? Literally stood there, juggled, put a hat out in front. And if somebody stopped, I would engage with them, talk to them and say, would you like to see my tricks? I can do tricks with this too, you know. And if they were game to see what I could do, I would run through the three or four tricks I could do under the leg, behind the back, off the head. Want to see it again? And it's sort of my, my ability to deal with an audience started very organically by just speaking and talking about the things I could do. That reminds me of my first street experience. Uh, it was a mall near my house, and I made a very big mistake, which was I thought, okay, I want them to give me tips. So if, if I put a glass jar down, <laughs> they'll be able to see the money inside the jar. Right. And it took maybe, oh, I'd say five, ten minutes before the first person kicked the jar, shattering the jar in a million pieces, and spreading <laughs> the money all over the, the, the concrete. And she immediately said, what are you doing putting a glass jar on the floor? Right. And I just said, uh, leaving? I'm leaving? <laughs> <laughs> Very short experience. Yeah, that was like literally a five or ten minute. I don't think anybody had, at that point actually had put money in the jar. It was just the money I'd already started in the jar. Right. But so you're out there, you're on the street, you're getting your first experience juggling in front of people. So how did you go from that to sort of developing what you would call a full sort of circle show? One trick at a like one trick at a time. It was start with the juggling, then get juggling clubs, learn how to ride a unicycle. And then around the same time that I was really starting to expand the number of props I was seeing, I also got to see some of the first street performers, actual street performers, do shows. And then the light bulb went off and I went, oh, that's how you do it. Well, who was the first show you saw? And what about it did you realize, oh, I need to do that? There's a, a craft or a, a farmer's market in Ottawa called the Byward Market. I'd already started going down to see if I could do some performing or doing anything down there. And this guy showed up from Toronto named Wes Zaharik. And he found a small space, but it was, to me, it, it was huge. And he did this show, probably 20-minute, 30-minute show, had a beginning, a middle, and end, passed the hat at the end, and my head just came off the top like the the top of my head just exploded when i saw how a structure like that worked do you remember any of the routines he did was he a unicycle rider as well or just juggler straight up juggler then the thing that blew me away was he could juggle five clubs he didn't have to hold it up very long at the time because for me five clubs was uh, something that was inconceivable nobody could do that and when he did it it was like i was reaching into my pocket to give him money now you're known uh, for your checkerboard guy persona Mm -hmm. which I think is a brilliant uh, bit of branding. Can you say how that evolution occurred? This first experience with juggling and, and seeing stuff in the market and stuff would have been early 80s. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, I would have started juggling and doing stuff for the Renaissance festivals and, and things like that, uh, or the Renaissance organization about 81. And then by about 83, 84, I'd started to f have a bit of a show of my own and was looking for a bit of a hook. So why did you feel the need for a hook? What about that sort of struck you as I need to stand out? How did you even come to that realization? I guess I had seen Waldo perform and he had 
been so charismatic and so striking to me as a personality, as a street performer, that I desperately wanted to be just like him. And we all want to be just like Waldo. (laughs) Unfortunately, uh, that's not possible. There's only one Waldo. But I understand your inspiration because I'd like to be Waldo, too. Right. And it was 1983. He came through Ottawa. I saw him wearing a tiger t-shirt and striped wraparound pants. Was just such a slick gentleman juggler that I wanted to be like that. And he let me hang out and ask lots of questions. He and a guy named Johnny Toronto were traveling together. And I got to hang out with them, ask all these sorts of questions. The, the checkerboard pants that I ended up making were the same wraparound pants that I'd seen Waldo wear. I always considered Waldo to be the Dean Martin of juggling. Perfect way to describe him. Yeah, absolutely. So you see the pants, you see the tiger shirt, you're like, okay, something like that, but yet my own thing. Right. And so where did the checkerboard, uh, where did the checkerboard pattern come from? Well, at the time, right around the early 80s was when Vans, checkerboard Vans sneakers were getting really popular. And Jeff Spicoli uh, in Fast Times from Ridgemont High, which was Sean Penn, was wearing a pair. And everyone was like, oh, those are really cool shoes. David uh, Van Halen. Or David Lee Roth and Van Halen was wearing them for the 1984 Van Halen concert tour. And I ended up getting a pair. And so the black and white shoes were at the bottom of my feet. And Ikea was ser- selling checkerboard fabric. And so I bought the checkerboard fabric to go with the checkerboard shoes and made myself a pair of pants. And then somebody gave me a bandana. And then from that point on, it was set. At what point did you start calling yourself the checkerboard guy? Well, that didn't, that wasn't me. That was other people. I was doing shows in this farmer's market in Ottawa, the Byward Market, and doing so many shows there. Like I would go out on a Thursday or Friday or Saturday, and there were no other performers performing there. So I could do two or three or four shows a night. And people started to refer to me as, you know, that guy, that guy who juggles, the guy with the checkerboards, the the checkerboard guy, we should go see his show. And so it was given to me by the audience. And did you, did you recognize that when you heard that? Like, oh, I got a hook. The hook for me was the costume, and that was more like a uniform that was consistent that I, you know, I, did, I didn't have to think. Once the uniform was set, it was great because it was like, that's one less thing I have to worry about. Now let's try to make the show better because the, the costume is doing its thing. It's doing what it needs to do. The name really, the, the whole hook for the name came a little bit later when I ran into a guy named Neil Rempel, who was running a street performers festival in Winnipeg, and he sort of took the checkerboard guy thing and went, CBG. And so that checkerboard guy became CBG, became even more branded. So did you move from like this, this market experience to then go into these busking festivals? Was that your first busker actual official festival that you did there? Well, the first festivals I started doing were, I traveled to Montreal to perform at the jazz festival or the, the comedy festival. Uh, and I'd been to a bunch of IJA festivals at this time. So I'd seen more performers and more of what's was happening and, and being inspired every time I went and saw other people working. It built up slowly until the 1988 season when the the very first Halifax Festival was in 87. And I went to the second one in 1988. And as part of doing that first Halifax Festival for me, I did a festival in Ottawa, a festival in Fredericton, and then the festival in Halifax. Who were your contemporaries at that time? What other performers were at these early festivals? Uh, the the first Halifax Buskers Festival reads like a who's who. It's incredible. Waldo Woodhead were there. Let's go uh, one at a time and give me a little bit of an idea of what they did. She so had Waldo and his partner Woodhead. Yeah, doing a. Could you describe a, their act for me? They were still working with Whitlow as well, their drummer. So a team juggling act with a drummer who is continually keeping the beat. 
But as you said, Waldo had this Dean Martin character and Woodhead had this fantastic Jerry Lewis character. So it was a great dynamic between the two. Yeah, one of my favorite acts. I don't I don't believe they still perform together. Maybe they get together occasionally. Have you heard anything about them working recently? Waldo at the Burlington uh, Street Performers Festival that Woodhead runs. Mm-hmm. But they were talking about doing the occasional show, but they haven't really done anything consistently in quite a few years. Oh, so you had Waldo Woodhead. Uh, give us the next one. Ray Jason was there from San Francisco. One of the San Francisco's, I think, I think he actually called himself the original... San Francisco street performer. He was the first performer to work Fisherman's Wharf. Right. A longtime veteran of the scene. Variety in Motion, Rick uh, Schnichter and Mardine Rubio. Okay. I know them. They were like a a couple at that time and they did a sort of a high energy and with unicycles and choreographed juggling, I remember. Yeah, that's right. And again, they, they played the couple card really, really successfully. And they were both from Baltimore, Maryland, and had sort of that cool, hip, Baltimore, young, beautiful person look, and it totally worked for them. It was great. How do you mean played the couple card? So they were a young couple, and they were saying, you know, we just got married, or they were about to get married, and so that mm. sort of endeared them to the audience as well as the fact that they were really working hard on putting a show together that had slick choreography and good juggling skills as well as dynamic tricks at the end on top of tall unicycles. So it was a really dynamic show. And I think that's also sort of setting the groundwork for the idea that people have to want to give you money. Sure. So the best street performers are not only skilled, but something about them people want to give as opposed right. to feeling like, well, okay, I should give. So they had that going for them. Like, oh, we're just starting our new lives and we're a young couple and this is such a great adventure for us. And if you could support us, Exactly. I can see how that could be very effective. Oh, yeah. Enormously attractive to an audience who really wants to see these kids succeed, right? So, And I mean, we were all kids at the time. We were all really young in terms of how old we were, you know, chronologic age. Some of us had, like, I, at that point, I would have been into it about six or seven years. But these, you know, Mardine and Rick had probably been doing it longer than I had. But we were still not ancient veterans like say the uh the the uh, ray jason from san francisco had had a much longer history yeah he's a bit older he's even older than myself and i'm of course agent so he has to be uh <laughs> in his 60s by now i haven't seen him for quite a few years i think he's uh retired or moved at least to key west and lives mostly on his boat yeah i heard he's living full-time on his boat these days and has a bit of a conspiracy theory going so he doesn't get out much like the like the uh, aluminum foil hat kind of thing, or just uh, maybe I, I don't know how far it goes. It, it sounded like he had a couple of yeah, they're all out to get me kind of thing. So I'm going to stay on my boat. So eh, I fair see. Enough. Well, not everybody's out to get him, but there are certainly a lot of people out to get him. So I can understand yeah. his feelings. Yeah, maybe. Uh, so well, so you have we have quite a few. Are there were there other of these sort of legendary uh, performers there at that first festival? Well, there was a group that actually formed at that first festival in Halifax, and it was consisted of myself doing my show as the checkerboard guy as solo, a guy named Brian Hulse, who was known at that point in the program, he was called the Union Street Juggler, or Union Station Juggler, a duo group called Twist and Shout, which was Henrik Boda and uh, Dave Rave. Mm-hmm. One day, we all got put in a single location where none of us felt there was enough audience to do a show. Brian had a, one of the very first amps at the time, a little PV solo, and he put on some music, and we'd all juggled together at different times. We just started picking up clubs and doing juggling patterns, and within a few minutes, this massive crowd just formed around us, 
And Brian, being always clever about these things, said, right, I'm going to do a piece from my solo show. You guys figure out a piece that you're going to do from your shows. And then Dave, uh, we're going to finish it with passing torches at the end. Let's do this. We followed that kind of basic pattern of you do a bit from your show, I do a bit from my show. And at the end, we passed the hat and we made a killing. And what did your early show look like? Uh, I know right now you have more than one finale. At that point, did you have a single finale? And what did you do kind of building up to it? Well, I had a couple of finales at that point still. I had a tall unicycle, giraffe unicycle, a, a slack rope routine. And at the slack rope was held up by a bunch of, you know, tied by a, you tie one end to a telephone pole or something stationary and then have the other end held by a bunch of guys and stand on top of it. It would be one or the other of those finales filled in with uh, juggling routines, volunteer participation pieces. I was climbing a freestanding ladder by that point as well. So there were quite a few skills that had sort of merged, uh, emerged at that point that I was doing in my show. Did we miss any performers that were at the festival? Have we sort of done through the list? No, there were tons. Like, oh, it, let's hear like some more. Literally, there was a, a list of probably 40 or 50 acts. Yeah, the Trigesters, they were a young group of jugglers who were all like, 12 or 13 and under was a brother and two sisters and they were doing great skills and they were they had the the kid card the cute kid card oh isn't it cute that they worked so hard to learn these skills and their parents would drive them around to all their shows and help them set up their stuff which was great birdie mclean i think was there for that first year gazo very famous street magician mickey o'connor was there a who's who of who was on the street at the time now when you talk about street festivals what, what makes a street festival different than just working on the street? What are some of the advantages? What are some of the disadvantages? And how would you identify what a street festival means? Well, I think the, the breakdown can go like this. You've got straight up street where you're on a pitch, which is like a farmer's market or something that naturally gathers an audience. And the pitch so, is the space that you would call that you, where you perform, the, the pitch? Yeah, the stage. Basically, the stage for a street performer is the pitch. And so you'll find a space, an open space, in a place where there's good traffic and traffic flow, either like a farmer's market is a great example of that. So find a space where there is traffic flow or a pedestrian mall. Mm -hmm. Find a natural setting where it's easy to gather an audience and then convince people to stop and watch a show. But there's no specific event that is happening at the time. So straight up street is like that. And what are you looking for in the setting? Are you looking for particular, like a amount of space, seating? shade, that type of thing? All of those things. You need to situate yourself in such a way that the audience can easily see you and so that the audience is comfortable while they're watching you. You also want to find a place where the audience flow and the just the general traffic flow is good so that there's uh, not one or two people coming by every minute, but there's a steady stream of people because you're trying to convince some of those people to stop and watch your show. And if you have a very slow trickle of people convincing that becomes very difficult. So, yeah, the space is everything. And when we talk about sort of traditional street spots or street performing, can you mention some that you know about across the United States where someone who might be interested in street performing could kind of go? I mean, we talk about the farmer's market or say maybe the local tourist spots in their own home area. What yeah. are some of the famous street spots that you know of across the United States? Jackson Square, New Orleans. That's and, a great example. Jackson Square makes it a, a good spot. It's a tourist location, so people are naturally gravitating towards that area anyway, and there are lots of places to set up and perform, and it's got a great history for the art form, much more so than most other parts of North America, actually. 
Yeah, Barry and I stopped in there and we had a show. I don't want to say it was legendary, but years later, we had heard of stories of us like, oh, then the Raspini brothers came and they filled the entire square. Right. Like we were right in front of the church area where the, where the steps are. Right. right. And now there's a space across the street. But it seems sort of dominated by break dancers. Certainly is. Yeah, there were fountains over there at one point, and uh, now I'm not sure if the fountains are still there or not. But it's basically a beautiful amphitheater, and the break dancers will set up. They'll have big, loud sound systems, and so you're you're capitalizing on being able to draw a crowd with the noise element. Yes, and I don't know if break dancers are known for their desire to share the pitch. I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I tend to agree with you on that. And they can be quite aggressive about their desire not to share the pitch. And quite often there are more of them than there are of you, so yes. it's a it's a numbers game that they've got working for them as well. So that's Jackson Square in New Orleans. Uh, yeah, just a couple other ones. Mallory Square in Key West, Florida. And have you worked that one? I've never done. I've been through once where I saw a couple acts, but I was there earlier in the day. Can you explain how that uh, that pitch runs? Well, it's known as uh, the Sunset Celebration. So at sunset, uh, a bunch of street performers will show up, and it. It's predominantly ruled by the veterans who've been there for years and years and years, people like Will Soto, who have been there longer than just about anyone. So those people kind of own it, rule it, and the the system in Mallory Square and Key West is kind of favored for the people who've been there the longest. Like in Key West, from what I understand, like you have to work further and further down the pier so Mm -hmm. that as people move down the pier, the less experienced acts, the guest acts, don't necessarily get the best spots. They're kind of further down. Correct. And that's my understanding of it, too. I've never actually spent enough time to fully witness and see the system, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly one of the places that people talk about a lot. Oh, for sure. Uh, Can you give us a couple other ones? Absolutely. Uh, Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, Colorado. I never worked that one myself. Can you describe that? It's a pedestrian mall that has uh, intersections at every block where cars can travel, but the, the main part of the street is a pedestrian mall. And I went there, it would have been 1985, I rolled through, and I got to see Barrett Felker and Johnny Fox and Air Jazz all doing shows in that space, and I was blown away. Yeah, Air Jazz, people don't know, they had a, a quite a good street show. And that, oh, at that was time, great. was it Barrett Felker, Peter Davison, and Kaziah? No, it was John. John, oh, John Held. Held. Yeah, John Held, Kaziah, and Peter. Uh, I got to spend some time hanging out with them, and I they were so generous uh, about being accepting of, at the time, I would have been 15 or 16. And just we're so keen system and the rules and of engagement and everything else. And I was just blown away by their artistry and their dedication to the craft. And how does the scheduling work there? Is it something like first come, first serve? Is there a draw? I don't really fully understand it. I haven't been there in years. And at the time, I wasn't really even paying attention to it. So I don't have a a current status of what's going on in Pearl Street. From what I hear, there's like a good spot and then like a lesser, a couple lesser spots. And it is sort of a, you get there and then... You just sort of alternate till your spot comes back up. Like if five people get there, then you kind of just go in order. Yeah, in a rotation. So that helps. It helps to keep things moving. But at the same time, you might get there and wait quite a bit or maybe only get in one show or two shows on the entire good day. Right. Okay, so we have that. Of course, there's uh, Pier 39 where I sometimes perform here on uh, in San Francisco. Well, and that whole area around Pier 39, the cannery, and uh, what was the other one that was down there before? You know, those don't really exist anymore. When I first would come down here to visit my sister when I was about 17, mm-hmm. I'd be able to see four, five, six, seven different acts because I would go from the Anchorage to the cannery to the, the Ghirardelli Square 
to the pier. So there's at least four really good spots. And now only the pier really still exists as a street performing spot, even though there are sort of what they call the circle spot and a more difficult places to work right on Fisherman's Wharf. Right. But those are much smaller. The crowd's much more transitory. The thing that we have at the pier is where the street spot is, there's actually a stage, mm. benches, a sound system, a schedule of the acts. You know, they're, they're, they're going at certain set times and we have a backstage area. So it's kind of like street performing light. Oh, it's completely. I mean, I was going to say this is a great example. San Francisco and the whole area down by the pier and Fisherman's Wharf. That's the difference between street performing, hardcore street, and then sort of the festival marketplace, you could call it. Mm -hmm. And the festival marketplace scenario like Pier 39 or Faneuil Hall in Boston or Harbor Place in Baltimore, these are all well-established tourist locations where there are venues that are kind of set up to support street theater versus the straight-up street scene just out on Fisherman's Wharf where it's a much more transitory audience. They're not there specifically. Like on Fisherman's Wharf, they're going from one place to another. So going from Ghirardelli Ghirardelli Square to Pier 39, and you really have to to grab hold of them and stop them. That, to me, is hardcore street versus Pier 39, which feels much safer. And once they're at the pier, once they're actually at the stage area, which is at the Mm. very far end of the pier... Because mm. what you're really looking for, like you say, is not transitory people, but people looking to spend some time, tourists. Sure. We're looking for something to do. Well, I, I think both work. I sure. think both both venues can work. I think that with a more transitory location like the, the Fisherman's Wharf, you need to have a much more guerrilla technique to your street show. It has to be much harder hitting, probably faster paced, and you have less chance to pause and develop character. Whereas in a situation like where there is seating and there's mm. a stage and there's backstage and there's a lovely sound system and you've got all this stuff that's working to your advantage, it becomes a more theatrical event and you can take a bit more time. Now, for the people listening who want to come to San Francisco, there are some disadvantages as well. First of all, it runs on an audition process. You can't just show up and do it. And the person doing the auditions is Scotty Meltzer, mm. who is pretty particular, especially when it comes to jugglers, since we already have a plethora of juggling acts. Of course. And being San Francisco, when the fog comes in and it's right there on the water, it can be quite windy, it can be quite cold. And during the week, it's not quite as busy as it would be on the the prime times or like Saturday afternoons, weekends, holidays, situations like that. Right. So if you're planning to visit, maybe call Scotty and see if you can arrange a guest spot or even an addition if you want to come down here and try to work uh, the local pitch that I do. And my recommendation too would be just to go and watch, sure. see see who's there, and, and take a look at who's on the pier as well as on Fisherman's Wharf, just to see the, the, the stark contrast between what the conditions are like in various different venues. So that sort of leads us to our next question. What can someone do to create a successful street show? What attributes do they try to include into their show to enhance their chances of success and uh, the bigger hats? I think the, the one of the biggest things is, is to convince producers that they want to hire you. And because there are so many jugglers in the world, anything that you can do that you can incorporate into your show that isn't just juggling, but that brings something else out that is unique will serve you very, very well. Like I just tried to get into a festival and the producer said, well, what's your finale? 
Right. Meaning, well, if we already have a guy doing this finale, a, a tall unicycle or a straight jacket escape, they don't try to, uh, they want to, they don't want to duplicate those types of acts. Right. And I went to one festival and they had a funny comment. I think they were talking, uh, Glenn Singer told me this, who's, um, performs as El Gleno Grande, mm. the very great horse comedy act. And he said he approached, uh, I think it was Halifax. And she said, we only book a certain number of your kind of act. <laughs> He's like, well, what do you mean by your kind of act? She says, you know, old guys. <laughs> so I think I fall in that category right. where they're certainly looking for younger, more youthful performers. But like you said, the more you can do to sort of create your own identity, not just say, oh, I'm a comedy juggler. You know, it's it's an interesting thing because to flip it to a different, completely different market, I work a lot on cruise ships as well. And in the cruise ship market, they want you to be a comedy juggler because that's an entity that they understand and they know. Mm -hmm. So you've got on one side of the coin, they want you to be something other than a juggler. So I brand myself as a comic daredevil who does all these stunts. And in the cruise ship market, they want a juggler. So I say, yeah, I do a comedy juggling show. So it really depends a bit on the market that you're pitching yourself to. Well, the cruise ships, they sort of created a template like this is what we want the comedy juggler spot to be. Right. Like if you do too much stand-up comedy in your act, they're like, no, we have a comedian. Right. You're the comic juggler. And if you go, well, I do a straightjacket escape or I do a magic trick. Or... Oh, no, no, no. That's the magician's job. Yes. So if you're looking at cruises, I think it's really – and you made a good point. Wherever you want to go, you really should go there first and sort of see what works there. Absolutely. Take a cruise. Go to a street spot. Watch the performers. And most of us are pretty approachable and say – can you give me some tips? How'd you do it? Because I think uh, jugglers, unlike maybe magicians, certainly not the majority of them, are quite approachable. Oh, yeah. They're like street performers as a whole. I mean, you'll run into a, a few people who are a little bit protective of their space, perhaps. But especially in a festival environment where people are there to see the shows and there's less competition because you're being scheduled in given spots. After one of those shows performers are really approachable and easy to talk to. Now, you've done festivals all over the world, but what do you consider sort of your favorite festival or one that you see is particularly has all the attributes that you're looking for in a street performing festival? You know, the interesting thing for me is that it's changed over the years. I had amazing experiences at the Edmonton Fringe Festival, and that happened sort of in the early 90s. I just had the best time working that event. A few years later, that festival seemed to not be as good as it once was. I had an incredible time for the first few years of the Halifax Festival when I went. And then that festival changed a little bit. And the way they went about doing things shifted to the point where uh, it, it just sort of lost a little bit of the magic or a little bit of the luster for me uh, that it had once had. So for me, I think it's changed a little bit. It, it used to be, I want to go and do great shows and make lots of money. Mm -hmm. That was a big priority. And these days, it's kind of, I want to have a great adventure. Take me somewhere new, show me something I haven't seen, and expose me to a, an opportunity to perform for an audience that I've never had the opportunity to play for. Now, have you worked places where they're, they're non-English speaking? Yeah. How do you handle that? A lot. Uh, I can do my show with very little language. My very first experience of that was probably in Japan. And I started traveling to Japan in 1990 and kept getting invited back. Uh, I think it was probably because my show had enough variety of skills with the unicycle and a freestanding ladder and lots of different juggling things and hat manipulation and ball spinning and everything else 
that they were able to say, well, even if you don't speak the language, your visual components are in entrancing sure, enough, know. high enough so that you'll be able to work. But then they kept inviting me back. And at a certain point, I started to actually learn the language. And now I can do my show in Japanese and I can converse in Japanese. So that's a huge advantage in that space. But I've been to China and I've been to Korea and different places in Asia where you know English is not the first language. And yet you still have to figure out a way to communicate. You figure out how to do a lot of stuff with body language and sort of pantomime stuff to get the dialogue that you're trying to convey across without words. Yeah, I think I did the same job in South Korea last year, and they had provided translators. Mm. And so that was a whole different thing where you would do your joke, you'd wait for the translator to translate the joke, hopefully get a laugh. And of course, if the translator didn't deliver the joke well, then it would kind of bomb. I had my translator try to sort of mimic my delivery as well as what I was saying. And did it work? Yeah, I was having the most success. The funny thing was is that I was there with Matt Baker and Niels Dunker. Right. And Matt, they, t- they told me, they said, your translator is very reserved and is a school teacher and is sort of on the quiet side. And I thought, okay. oh, that sounds great. That's exactly <laughs> who I want to be doing my comedy. Right. And Matt Baker's was more of a bombshell type, sort of a, a younger, uh, attractive, sort of vivacious a Korean woman. Right. And I thought, oh my God, he scored and here I'm going to be stuck sort of, it's really going to hamper my show. But yet his was very, she turned out to be like too cool. Like she wouldn't do that. She wouldn't translate exactly what he was saying. And mine was so eager to do a good job that I really ended up thinking I had the best translator. Right. So it really worked out well for me, even though that job itself was fraught with difficulties. Do you think, too, that for you, because you kind of have that dry delivery anyway, that this guy could really sort of feel that and emulate it successfully? It was a woman, but also I was smart enough to go slower and leave right. pauses and and make the joke shorter and right. also try to understand the relatability of what I was saying. A lot of my jokes exist in a certain context. So I would do more things just basically about Korea and even sort of things like, Korea is mighty, like a strong dragon. You know, things like... <laughs> Completely. Okay, sure. <laughs> you know, in a very goofing way. Right. Korea, number one. United States, number four. You know, sort of <laughs> downplaying things like that. So we're quite good. Hey, you know, we're actually getting quite towards the end of our podcast, but we'd be remiss without a few things to mention. Sure. First of all, you run your own sort of website that includes a podcast called the Buskers Hall of Fame. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Back in October of 2011, I convinced Robert Nelson, the butterfly man, to start a podcast that kind of emulated the Mark Marin WTF podcast Mm. because I thought the world of street performing needed a spokesperson who had been in the world a long time and could tell great stories. And who better than the butterfly man? Exactly. I figured he was a perfect fit. Yeah, quite the storyteller. Quite the storyteller. Now, is there actually a Busker Hall of Fame and do you have inductees? We do. We started it as just the podcast. And then when Robert died, we decided that he should be the very first inductee into the Busker Hall of Fame as sort of this institution. And so in 2013, on April Fool's Day, April 1st, he became the first inductee into the Busker Hall of Fame. Is he the only, but did you have to have passed away to be a Hall of Fame member? Or? No, you don't. And in 2014, we conducted a vote sort of uh, via Facebook to 
ask people who they thought should be the inductee for the 2014 year. And we had a tie between Chris Lynham, who performs mm-hmm. as Chris the Piss, the, somebody who's probably very famous to jugglers, Nils Paul, who created the Nils Paul bowler hat. I think I came in third, didn't I? I think <laughs> you were in the running somewhere. Yeah, down that's the list right. There. A little bit further down the list. Yeah. yeah. You know, well, I'd say that you're not necessarily known for your street performing prowess. That's not where you got the bulk of your fame. So when the juggling Hall of Fame comes out, I think that might be a better fit just in terms of what you've given to the community. Thank you. Very diplomatically stated, David. Thanks. You're welcome. Hey, let's end the podcast, if you don't mind. Sure. There, you have a famous, I've heard it before, Butterfly Man story. <laughs> Do you mind relating that to us? And we'll end on, on that note. Okay. So I'm going to just say that the story that I have with the Butterfly Man was re, uh, recanted by the Butterfly Man on the Busker Hall of Fame. It was episode number eight of the Busker Hall of Fame Story from the Pitch podcast uh, that you can find at buskerhalloffame.com. But here's my version. Give of us what your happened. take, because I'm sure he had his take, which was uh, maybe embellished. Or <laughs> it's Robert's version of the okay. story. For Let's sure. hear your version, because it's quite a well-known story in the world of uh, street performing. So we were at the Halifax Buskers Festival. He had been coerced into becoming the MC for the sponsorship tent. The, this tent was being sponsored by Labatt's Beer. And to acknowledge their sponsorship, whenever anything went really, really well, he would lift up a bottle of Labatt's and go, and thanks to Labatt's Beer, and he'd take a sip. And when everything went wrong, something would go wrong, he'd pick up the bottle again and go, <laughs> and thanks to Labatt's Beer for being our sponsor, and he'd take another drink. And progressively over the evening, he got drunker and drunker and drunker and a little bit more aggressive, assertive in his performance style. Okay. That's, I, I can picture that. I can picture that. Yeah. So a certain amount of butterfly coming out. And the butterfly man has already quite the assertive, aggressive sort of nature about the performances he do. So get him a little bit tipsy. And that just came out even more. Okay. So he's, I, he's the MC. He's having a yeah. little libation in between acts when things go bad, when things go good. I show up what he considers what he considers to be a little bit late. And it really, I show up exactly on time to hit the stage. But it freaks him out because he wants me to be there 30 minutes in advance sure. to make sure everything goes well. But I have the opportunity to do another show. So I take that opportunity to do the show because I've been having a, a tough time at this festival this year. Right. So I, I'm doing this other show. I scream over it as fast as I can to get to the tent. And I show up and he's livid. You can just see the steam and the smoke coming out of his ears. And so I go, right, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do my ladder routine. I hand out three clubs into the audience. I climb up the freestanding ladder. I juggle the ladders on top. I hop down. Everything's great. This isn't good enough for Robert. Robert decides that the these clubs need to be replaced with torches. So he goes around to each volunteer, swaps out a soaked torch for the club. And I'm looking at what's going on trying to describe still go on with the routine as I normally would but you're constantly having to deal with the fact that Robert is clearly trying to mess with what's going on mm. this is fine okay. then he goes around with a lighter and lights <laughs> the torches before they're thrown up to me so they're still so in the it, audience the torches are burning just random people have them right and they're going to be thrown up to me one at a time in a tent where the space is kind of small and behind me there's a full stage of instruments for the band that's going to close the show after me mm. I get the torches thrown up one at a time successfully. No mishaps. Everything goes off without a hitch, thankfully. 
And I start to juggle the torches to this big round of applause because it's worked. Right. Throw a high throw, catch the torch, crowd goes crazy, everybody's happy. I look down, there's Robert Nelson with a fire extinguisher. And before I have a chance to say anything, I get blasted with this enormous mushroom cloud of toxic gas that fills the tent. Within about 30 seconds, everyone has vacated the tent. I'm still standing on top of the ladder trying not to lose my balance. And the, the mushroom cloud subsides enough so that he looks up at me and he sees two black dots, which are my eyes blinking down <laughs> at him. Right. And he looks at me and he goes, I'm sorry, I had to do it. You know, I had to do it, didn't you? know that that had to happen, right? I, I couldn't. Not, I had to do it. I hop down off the ladder, hand him the torches, grab my clubs and walk out of the tent, mildly frustrated by the whole experience. But I found out later, and this was perfect as a, a punishment for the crime, he ended up having to go through each of the instruments behind me because the whole tent had been covered with this fine white powder from the shot that had been given me. So in the end, uh, no one got hurt, but he did have to sort of pay a price for trying to knock me off my ladder with a fire extinguisher. So that was, it worked out all right. Well, thanks for sharing that story from the pitch. And speaking of stories from the pitch, if you want to hear other street performers' stories, you can go to Busker Hall of Fame and check out the podcast that Dave was involved in called Stories from the Pitch. Correct. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to end with a, a little something I learned from the rest from the Butterfly Man. Sure. At one of the uh, motion fests, when a performer was up there, he was coaching. He said, "Don't forget to breathe." <laughs> Do that. Make sure you breathe. Make sure you give the audience a chance to breathe and have fun whenever you're out on the pitch. Hey, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure talking to the great checkerboard guy, David Aiken. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Drop Everything Podcast number 12, my conversation with master performer David Aiken, the checkerboard guy. Thanks again to our sponsor, the International Jugglers Association, which can be found at their website, juggle.org. If you're interested in sponsoring a future episode of Drop Everything, then drop me a line at danjuggle at gmail.com. Thanks again to our engineer, Karen Holzman. And to all you faithful listeners, drop everything except when you're juggling.